The story we're diving into on today's episode has brought the national news spotlight back to Albuquerque again over the last week about the nature of politics today. This was about a right-wing radical, an election denier who was arrested today, and someone who did the worst imaginable thing you can do when you have a political disagreement which we'll has turned that to violence. That was Mayor Tim Keller last week, talking about a guy Albuquerque police arrested named Solomon Pena. Pena is a former Republican candidate for the New Mexico House of Representatives, and he ran in the November election and lost to a Democratic incumbent. Weeks after the election was over, the homes of four elected leaders in Albuquerque, all of whom are Democrats, were shot at. Police have now accused Solomon Pena of conspiring with and hiring a group of men to shoot at these politicians' homes. It is believed that he is uh, the mastermind that was uh, behind this and that was organizing this. This week on the New Mexico News Podcast, we're taking a deeper look into this remarkable crime. What happened? Who is Solomon Pena? And how did investigators put this case together? And finally, we'll talk to a political analyst about what this case says about New Mexico politics. Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. Getting into how this case has played out both publicly and with law enforcement working behind the scenes to piece everything together, we're bringing in our first guest to help lay out the timeline of events as we currently understand them. Investigative reporter Ann Perret joins us here again. Ann, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So Anne, what was your involvement in tracking this case without really getting into the nitty gritty details here? Because I know there's a lot of details. I just wanted to sort of ask you that up front because it sounds like you've learned some interesting details early on before police made their big announcement last week, that being the first arrest in this case. Yes. So before that big announcement, my involvement was really just kind of behind the scenes at that point, using court records and then having off the record conversations to confirm that I was headed in the right direction with my suspicions of who that first suspect, that first arrest was. That then led to a lot of research on that person to kind of be prepared, really set us up for on the record confirmation that uh, my suspect, I thought it was, was correct. So you had a hunch that somebody was involved and it turns out that hunch was actually correct. Correct. All right. So let's start from the top to catch listeners up on how this all began. Basically, across the months of December and January, shots were fired at or near the offices and homes of multiple elected officials here in New Mexico. None of us knew this at the time until police came out and announced their investigation on January 5th. I want to... uh assure uh, all of our uh, elected officials in uh, the Albuquerque metro area that uh, we do take this seriously. We're grateful that nobody has been injured, but we also uh, realize that we have to move quickly. The initial three victims were two Democratic Bernalillo County commissioners and one Democratic state senator. On December 4th, Commissioner Adrian Barboa's home was shot at. My house was shot up shots directly through the front door. It was terrifying, you know, just hours before I had been out here 
putting up Christmas lights and playing with my grandbaby. On December 11th, more than a dozen shots were fired at outgoing Commissioner Debbie O'Malley's home. That was a very scary event. But, uh, uh, you know, I can't live, uh, you know, in fear. And on January 3rd, again, more than a dozen shots were fired, this time at the home of State Senator Linda Lopez. Next morning, woke up, uh, saw what actually of um, the bullet holes that were in my room. We went to go look in my daughter's room and then came out front and saw what had happened. So it was a few days after the initial announcement of the case where we had the first big development in this case, which Ann can talk more about. But essentially, on January 9th, Albuquerque police says one person is in custody and another lawmaker's home was discovered to have been shot at on December 8th, the Albuquerque home of new Democratic House Speaker Javier Martinez. The Albuquerque Police Department is here to announce that uh, there is a suspect uh, in custody on unrelated charges uh, related to these incidents. Uh, We do have uh, a firearm in our possession uh, that... uh, is linked uh, to one of the shootings. But police are super tight-lipped about this case initially. They didn't release the name of the suspect in custody. They didn't say which jail he was in, who's detaining him, what charges he was being held on. And this is where you started looking into some things, right? What did you find? So I looked into both the state and federal court records. Here at our station, we pay very close attention to those. And one of our bosses actually came across an interesting federal complaint And it just kind of added up that this had to be who the chief was talking about. Uh, This suspect, his name is Jose Luis Trujillo. We found a federal complaint on him that really just checked all the boxes, everything that we knew from APD at that point, which was this was a male under 50 in custody on unrelated charges. And APD had a firearm they connected to one of the shootings. Okay, so you know a man... His name is Jose Trujillo, but no information at this point was confirmed on the record as him being connected to these lawmaker shootings, correct? Correct. Nothing on the record. So with nothing on the record, you can't really report anything, right? You're just sort of learning this information, waiting to a point where you'll see if you can get something confirmed, right? Right. Doing the research, looking further into who this person is, right? So, okay, he's charged federally. Well, was he charged prior to that um, by the state? So then looking at that case and, you know, filing an IPRA to get the records connected to that arrest and getting the mug shot, just kind of being prepared for when that announcement was going to be made. So we had everything in order. It's been almost 14 days, I believe, Kyle, somewhere around there that our detectives have been working nonstop to get uh, resolution and to take somebody into custody. So our next big development, it happens on MLK Day. This is January 16th. It's late in the afternoon. Albuquerque police, they call a news conference for 5 p.m., for what they say is an update in a, quote, high-profile case. It all comes just shortly after something that happened actually right outside the Karakui News 13 studio. Those who were working at the station that day got a call from APD saying that our employees here in the building, they actually had to shelter in place because of what they were doing. So that was the sound of APD officers captured on camera. They were hailing Solomon Pena over an intercom. He was arrested 
at a condo complex that is just literally right across the street from where our station is outside of the downtown core of Albuquerque. Then, as Chris mentioned, that's when this sort of sudden big news conference takes place and APD unfurls this entire plot. Investigators call Solomon Pena a mastermind behind this case. APD says Pena is accused of conspiring with and paying four other men to shoot at the homes of two county commissioners and two state legislators. APD says detectives believe Pena paid the men cash and sent text messages with addresses where he wanted them to shoot at homes. They even say Pena went with the men and attempted to shoot at least one of the homes with an AR handgun, but that gun was said to have malfunctioned. So, Anne, as it turns out, this guy you were looking into, Jose Luis Trujillo, he has been connected to these shootings to Solomon Pena, right? What is his connection? Right. So according to APD, Jose Luis Trujillo, he is one of those four men that Solomon Pena hired to carry out those shootings at the lawmakers' homes. And right now, investigators say he's the one who shot at State Senator Linda Lopez's home. That was on January 3rd, uh, just after midnight. And uh, BCSO just happens to stop him not even an hour after that shooting. It turns out that was just kind of luck, but it ends up just really cracking this case wide open. And why was he stopped by BCSO? So the criminal complaint says that a Bernalillo County Sheriff's deputy pulled him over for an obstructed license plate and um, expired tags. Turns out he had a warrant for his arrest in a 2021 stalking case. He had failed to appear at a court hearing uh, this past fall. So then BCSO can take him into custody on that warrant. They can then search his car. In doing so, they find almost 900 fentanyl pills, more than $3,000 in cash, two guns, and he is charged by the Bernalillo County DA with being a drug trafficker. Um, that case eventually ends up in the federal court system, and they added more charges to that. So when he gets stopped just after this shooting that's said to have happened at Linda Lopez's home, right, the deputy who stopped him again, no idea that there's a connection there, right? This, as you mentioned, is kind of a lucky situation. Exactly. And, you know, the chief credited that deputy with doing what is asked of all BCSO uh, deputies, every APD officer, which is any time that you confiscate a gun, you put that into evidence. And um, once that goes into evidence, it's tested by the crime lab that they have. And they use a number of different technologies. That's what leads them to find out that one of those guns confiscated in that traffic stop was used in the shooting at Linda Lopez's home. Okay. So then the question becomes sort of, how do you make that connection? You, you know, they have the person, they have a gun, they connect it to the shooting, but then where does Pena come into all of this? How do they connect Pena to this person that they have in custody now with a sort of hot gun, if you will? So when Trujillo is arrested, they, as I mentioned, searched his car. They also confiscate his car. And in doing so, they check to see, well, does he own this car? is actually registered to Solomon Pena. That name has already come up uh, from a few of the lawmakers whose homes were shot at. That's one connection, right? But then they also, they end up having this witness that they mentioned repeatedly throughout the criminal complaint who clearly played a very large role in this investigation, really helped them piecing everything together. 
And this witness says that Pena was actually in the car with Trujillo prior to that traffic stop. From the time of that shooting to the time that Trujillo is stopped, it's about 40 minutes. So we know at some point in there, Pena gets out of the car, whether Trujillo drops him off somewhere, something happens. We learn from that witness, according to the criminal complaint, that Pena had gone with Trujillo to participate in that shooting at State Senator Linda Lopez's home. The witness says that Pena actually tried to shoot at the home himself. One of those guns that was found in the car, the AR, is the one that he tried to use, but the witness says it jammed. So Trujillo ends up being the one who uses um, the other gun, which he had you know, manufactured to be a machine gun. That's what fires 12 shots at her home. And then there's one other connection there, right, as well, a phone call that gets mentioned, a phone call that happens with Trujillo to someone else as well when Trujillo's in custody, right? Yes, and we don't know who Trujillo called, but the federal complaint says that Trujillo made calls while in MDC. Those are recorded phone calls we know. APD listened to those, and on one of those phone calls, he said, quote, they, meaning law enforcement, found my guns. So that's their confirmation that he is involved in the shooting, that he owns those guns. Just to be clear, though, Trujillo, who we've mentioned, he's not been charged in this case yet, right? What's his status? Correct. Actually, the only person as of the day we're recording this who has been charged in this case of shooting at these elected officials' homes is Solomon Pena. We know police believe that he had hired four people to shoot at the homes. None of those four have been charged in connection to this case. Jose Luis Trujillo was charged in that traffic stop. Again, initially was just drug trafficking here in Bernalillo County, but then the feds adopted that case and they ended up charging him with possession of a machine gun, possession with intent to distribute more than 40 grams of fentanyl, and possession of a firearm in furtherance of a drug trafficking crime. The judge granted his defense attorney's request that uh, Jose Luis Trujillo undergo a psychological evaluation. So that case currently paused as we wait for those results. Do we know anything about other involvement, those other three men? So we know that there are four shooters total, according to APD. It's Jose Luis Trujillo, two brothers, and then Demetrio Trujillo. The criminal complaint for Pena says that Pena paid Demetrio $500 to carry out these shootings. It appears that Demetrio then may have coordinated uh, these other three to help him carry out these shootings. The criminal complaint also mentions that Demetrio was very clear to the shooters that um, he wanted them to shoot during the day. Uh, the suspicion there being that nobody would be home and uh, more towards the top of their homes, which we find out through, again, that witness who's played a, a very large role in this investigation, that that is not what Pena wanted. Pena was upset, which is why we find out um, police believe he participated then in the shooting at uh, State Senator Linda Lopez's home. He wanted uh, things to be a little different. He wanted the shooting to be at eight o'clock um, 
and expecting people to be home at that time and not quote lying down. He wanted them to be standing up, moving around their home. The suspicion there of course being to actually hit them. And, um, he wanted the shooting to be lower down in the house, not, um, you know, opposite of what Demetrio had uh, instructed the shooters to do. We know that that actually results in shots, uh, bullets getting into their home. Uh, We later find out that Senator Lopez's daughter's room was hit. The ceiling was hit and some of the debris from the ceiling ended up like in her bed with her. Very scary. So let's talk a little bit more about who Solomon Pena is. Of course, APD described him as the mastermind of this case. As we mentioned as well before, he ran for office in November 2022. He was a Republican candidate on the ballot for House District 14. It's a district that covers a lot of residents sort of around area of downtown. Also mostly covers areas west of the Rio Grande in sort of a South Valley neighborhood, you could say. And just to ask you, what do we know about Solomon Pena? How has he described himself online? What what do we know about him? So Solomon Pena has been very vocal on Twitter. Right after the election, he immediately went on um, and and mentioned that he does not and will not concede in his uh, house race. Um, He also mentions that Trump had just announced for 2024, he's standing with him. It's very clear. I mean, we know he's a Republican, but it's very clear he supports former President Donald Trump online. He's mentioned that he's participated in in several rallies for Trump. Um, We do know that he did serve several years in prison. He has a lot of burglaries on his record, and it was uh, one of those that that sent him to prison. There was a lawsuit involved with like making sure that he could be on the ballot and and all of that. And yeah. his um, opponent Miguel Garcia tried to get him disqualified from the ballot based on his uh, prior convictions, but that was an unsuccessful attempt. Correct. And interestingly enough, he called himself a reformed felon, saying that he had turned his life around. And as of the day that we're recording this, we haven't heard from Pena directly. Is there anything more that you've learned about the motive in this case? We know, too, that he went to several of these lawmakers' homes and uh, brought documentation saying that he did not lose, trying to prove to them they were kind of surprised by that, but also a little nervous about it too, it seems like from the rhetoric and um, from the way he was reacting. Again, that's all kind of in the the criminal complaint from police, things that they've mentioned at the the press conferences. So it just appears, you know, he's, he's disgruntled. He was upset that he did not win that election and he believes that he should have. And where can people reach you? You can always find me on any social media. It's at Ann Perrette and then on email at ann.perrette at krqe.com. So this case is not just a big deal based on the allegations from investigators, but it also has a lot of implications about the nature of politics at large. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, a conversation with KRQE political analyst Gabe Sanchez on what he thinks this case says about New Mexico politics. You and 
QE political analyst Gabe Sanchez is in studio with us today in person. Gabe, thanks so much for joining us once again. We always appreciate your insight. Yeah, I appreciate y'all having me. It's great to see you and actually being here in person. You know, in studio, it's it's good. Yeah. It has a different flavor to this. I appreciate it does, that. and better sound quality better too. Sound we always quality. like that. <laughs> so, part of the reason we wanted to talk to you about these shootings is because of the political climate, if you will. This is something I know we've discussed before. More than a year ago on our podcast, right after a contentious Albuquerque mayoral election where some of the attacks got personal, you said back then that it's getting harder to get qualified, educated people interested in running for political office, partly because of all the pressure and really negative discourse that running for office comes with nowadays. But you have to always be concerned with somebody raising completely baseless, unsubstantiated claims that you have to explain to your family on television. And I think that's the unfortunate reality. It minimizes the number of good candidates we'll see emerge down the line. Do you still feel that way? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's so much has happened in the political world over the last two, three years that it's hard for us and the general public, I think, to just remember and, and honestly, how much craziness there is in the political system and every single event seems to unfortunately push things even further into contentious discussion. Now we're talking about actual violence, not just threats of violence. Um, so I think, you know, you have to ask yourself, you know, is this going to impact good quality, good people from here in New Mexico who might be on the fence about thinking about running for office? It was already a contentious climate, as we've talked about that past year, you know, of just being worried about hearing negative things about yourself or your family and debates, et cetera. And now you've got the added dimension of, of unfortunately having to fear potentially for your safety. And so I think that that just adds a whole nother new and very powerful obstacle that I think will impact, you know, the likelihood that we see quality candidates that, that consider putting themselves potentially into harm's way to run for office. So when the news of these shootings first broke, um, you know, that multiple elected Democratic politicians' homes and, and the investigation initially opened as well into the office places of elected Democratic politicians that they were being targeted, being shot at. When that news first broke, what did you think? What were your first thoughts? I think a little bit of, I can't believe this is happening. And then obviously, like most folks, you know, hoping that police would find who is responsible before it escalated and, and we actually had people that were were shot or unfortunately um, casualties. Um, so I think immediately it's like, wow, this is this uh, can't be real. And then immediately you think about, you know, the national context. Unfortunately, New Mexico is not unique in this. Uh, the most obvious example was Speaker Pelosi, who was targeted. Unfortunately, her husband was attacked. Um, so it's it's another example, I think, of an escalating sense of violence directed at elected officials. And New Mexico, unfortunately, we've got maybe the only case that I'm aware of that has moved from threats of violence or attempted violence to actual, especially in the context of gun violence uh, directed at elected officials. So it's it's an unfortunate dynamic. You know, we always, as, as New Mexicans, have a lot of pride in our community. And I think sometimes when we see ourselves reflected in national news for not positive reasons, I think it hurts all of us. We mentioned in our earlier discussion that police say Pena was the, quote, mastermind behind these shootings at elected leaders' homes. He had felonies on his record before running for office. And Chris, can you explain a little bit more context leading into this question? Yeah, so the state has a law on the books that bars felons from holding elected office. Pena's challenger, Democrat Miguel Garcia, he tried to get Pena thrown off the ballot through a lawsuit because of Pena's felon status. 
But a New Mexico District Court judge decided to let Pena stay on the ballot for a few reasons, one of which Pena's lawyer argued that felons can't hold office, that statute, it might be unconstitutional. But the judge also said that because New Mexico allows felons to reclaim their voting rights after serving their sentence, that they should be able to hold office as well. The question I have for you, Gabe, is do you think there is or will be maybe an appetite amongst lawmakers to possibly look at these rules again after this incident with Pena? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, and I think it's often the case that uh, most elected officials, even myself, did not know the nuances of these statutes until you have something that that reaches, you know, the the public's attention and then folks look at the statute and say, wait a minute, maybe it's time to rethink this. So I definitely think there will be a second look at this. And, and you know, obviously the context of this case, bringing this to our attention, probably means people are going to start pushing towards restricting access to running for office and holding office, maybe even more so than the statute already says uh, for folks that have been convicted of a felony. Now, the opposite side of this is, I think, a very sound and tangent argument to me. If somebody pays their debt to society, right, they're eligible to gain access to the vote. Um, Why shouldn't we give them an opportunity to make the case to voters uh, that they deserve to to represent the population. And for me, I've always thought about these things very simply, right? If, if we live and practice a democracy, a lot of these matters should be adjudicated by the voters directly. And so if somebody, you know, again, has paid their, their debt to society, has made something of themselves and, and runs for office and the voters guarantee they're going to know about it because their opposition is going to definitely find paths to be able to remind voters about their history uh, but they're able to to circumvent that and 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 are successful with voters. My opinion, and it's again my opinion, not my my legal opinion here, uh, that those candidates should have the opportunity to make a case for themselves, just like they have the opportunity to gain the right to vote back. We've talked about how holding political office comes with a lot of pressure, and not to mention it doesn't really pay well in particular cases here in New Mexico, if at all. Albuquerque City Councilors, Bernalillo County Commissioners. They each earn about thirty to $40,000 a year for their public service, which oftentimes is much more than a full-time job, you know, responding to constituents, going to meetings that last late hours into the night, doing research and whatnot. Then on the state lawmaking side, those lawmakers actually don't earn a salary. They just get paid per diem and stipends during the session. There's no regular or substantial paycheck that comes with the state lawmaking work. So that's something that we know that this session is expected to be discussed. Do you think that that bill this time may have some more traction to it? You know, especially in light of what's going on, I think the idea that people put themselves out there, make decisions for the state, and then also you deal with the other sides of this now, the accusations of of being shot at essentially. With that in mind, there is a chance that maybe you know, New Mexicans can all get on board uh, in the lawmaking realm with the idea of paying lawmakers and maybe changing the rules behind their payment. Yeah, that's another great question. I mean, I'll I'll say that as far as I can remember as a little kid, folks, the legislature have been talking about moving towards what's often referred to as a more professional legislature, not meaning that right now we don't have high quality professionals holding office, but in addition to, to not being paid for, for their, you know, lots and lots and lots of time, they also don't have professional staff. And I think a lot of the public doesn't realize that, that unless you're really in a leadership position, you don't have staff support to help you sort through research, uh, go through all the different bills and, and help kind of track constituency demands. There's a lot that 
that you have to do as an individual in New Mexico in the legislature that in other states, you've got support staff to do that. Um, I think that this will bring a new nuance and a new angle to the debate um, and potentially moves this a bit further than it has in years past because I think now, you know, all legislators, both sides of the aisle might be looking at this a bit differently um, and thinking about, you know, all that you sacrifice uh, when you run and are successful in winning office. And, and we usually talk about these things really in terms of time investment, time away from your job, which obviously impacts your financial well-being. But now we're talking about also public safety. So I think it adds a new dimension to it. Um, I'll say that I've polled on this issue a number of times over the years, and it's popular among voters. Mm. I think once voters understand how unique New Mexico is relative to everybody else in the country that does have a paid legislature, most of the public has always supported this. Um, it's often a question in New Mexico, how are we going to pay for it? Right. And in years past, that's always been, in my opinion, was kind of saddled this and, and moved it off of moving forward to a full vote. Uh, this time around, we also are flush with much more resources than I've ever seen in terms of New Mexico history. So maybe that also uh, puts some some emphasis on, look, we've got the resources to make this happen. Let's not money uh, stand in the way of, of creating, you know, a, again, a, a more, quote unquote, professional legislature. Can you give us a little more insight of like how we stand nationally against other like state legislators? You, you mentioned New Mexico being unique. I'm just curious, how unique are we? Yeah, we're talking about, I think Nevada might be the only other state in, in the whole entire wow. union that doesn't have a paid legislature. Um, so we're among, I think, only one or two. Um, and in the other dimension, not having full-time staff, I think, again, it's either us by ourselves or us in Nevada. And that's essentially it. So we really are an outlier when it, when it comes to how we approach the legislature. And I think it's an important thing for people to understand, right? It's, it's not just rewarding those folks for their time investment. I, I'm always much more concerned in what impact it has at the front end of the conversation. Who thinks about running for office? Um, and, you know, it's a very small select segment of our state's population that actually can say, I can take off 60 days right now for this session from my job um, and, and be able to do this, right? It, it really closes the door, I think, for a lot of layers of representation. And I think that's always what I'm more concerned about than, you know, making sure that the folks that are in office are adequately compensated for their expertise and their time. Mm. Yeah, for sure. That's a good point. Um, it really weeds out people who can take that time off from having to have a full-time job. It's not just the person we know who holds a political office that goes through the campaign trail and deals with a lot of the negative political discourse, right? It's their families, often their children. We know Senator Linda Lopez found a bullet in her daughter's bedroom ceiling. In this case, when we talk about Solomon Pena's accusations, how do you see things like this impacting state politics going forward if you have a projection? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the the sad reality of, of situations like this, right? I think every elected official that I've ever talked to, um, and not even about this extremity in terms of violence, but about, you know, the constraints that come along with the duties of being in, in elected office, they always, if they have children, always speak first about, hey, I signed up for this. I knew what I was getting into, but the impact that it's having on my family is what everybody's most concerned with. And I can say that's the case here. I know many of the people that were victims in this situation personally, and I know all of them's first fear was about their kids. Um, also the long-term implications. I mean, just think about that. If you have somebody firing shots at your home, 
You know, you want your kids to think of your home as the safest place in the world, right? And obviously that's going to be impacted to a certain degree because of this. So I think moving forward, there probably will be enhanced conversations on a number of fronts. All of this potentially harmful to the thing that I've always loved about New Mexico politics, the accessibility that the average everyday New Mexican has to their elected officials. And we've already seen some of this have to be impacted. Again, so much has happened in the last couple of years. I just remind folks, right? We had to have the state capitol building completely closed closed off from the public, not just because of COVID, everybody remembers that, but remember after the, the raid on the U.S. Capitol, there was serious concern here in New Mexico and across other states that we would see similar acts of violence directed at elected officials. And the governor had to take pretty strong action and remember fence off uh, the state capitol to protect uh, the members and the building itself from potential violence. So we're already seeing, unfortunately, layers of that accessibility have to be restructured. And my worry is, you know, that if we think about um, removing the ability for an average everyday New Mexican voter to just walk right up to a member of the legislature in the roundhouse, the people's house, right? That'll be an unfortunate reality of, of the situation that we're talking about. And then the other more straightforward one, and again, this has been a conversation I recall maybe 10 years ago specific to judges who are unfortunately being targeted because of the tough jobs that they have. Remember, there was discussions about removing their physical address uh, from from any public information. And now we're talking about probably having the same level of conversation as it relates to elected officials. So all of this, for good reason, you know, maybe is, is time that we consider these items. Uh, but again, the, the unfortunate reality is it just, it removes that really beautiful thing that we've always had in New Mexico, where I could often say New Mexico is a state where voters have the greatest access uh, to their elected officials of anywhere in the United States. And maybe we still will have that, 10 years from now, but I guarantee it'll look a little bit different than it does today. And I think there's always been a level of pride amongst the lawmakers as well, knowing that they are, you know, one of the only, if not the only volunteer legislatures out there, you know, there's just that degree of sort of pride that comes with it. I think because of the fact that it's, I'm really doing this for the people, you know, I'm not some person collecting a big check and getting into lawmaking because I know it will, you know, ensure that I don't have to have some sort of other professional career. And so that dynamic, I wonder just how that sort of shifts. I know I've always just sort of felt that amongst lawmakers, that sense of pride. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I think moving forward, let's say this passes, whether it's this legislative session or one down the line, and we move towards a paid legislature, you know, I, I suspect nine times out of 10, you know, the same folks that have the passion for our state and want to do good for our state are still going to be motivated and they'll still have that sense of pride. Uh, but time will tell. I mean, it's one of those things where we've got, you know, Every single legislature up to this point has operated under our rules um, that have been very open in, in, in a lot of these regards. And moving forward, you know, if you move to a paid legislature, what will that look like? And, you know, that's my job as an analyst is to stare at data and figure out have any outcome shifted as a result of that, good, bad or ugly. Well, Gabe, thank you so much. Uh, is there anything that you felt that we didn't touch on that maybe you wanted to inflect? You know, I mean, in, in the context of of trying to unpack, you know, how did we get here? You know, a question I've been asked a lot is, you know, is this unfortunately just going to become a greater sign of the times? Um, and, you know, in, in closing, I'll, I'll say a little bit about that. One is we've seen nationally, unfortunately, a rise in uh, you know, threats and even violent action taken towards elected officials over the past, you know, four or five years or so. 
And I think a lot of that is unfortunately because the discourse among elected officials and candidates for office has taken such a severe term uh, away from civil discourse and to personal attacks, things we've talked about on this podcast before. I think it's unfortunate that the public sees what's going on and they're reacting to it just like anybody else would, where they, they say, look, you know, if it's okay for elected officials to scream at each other then it's okay for me as a citizen to scream at my legislature. And you can just see how that that line right in the sand starts to get a little more blurry and unfortunately gets a little bit closer to, to violence. And, you know, the reality is in the United States, we're not really used to this, especially here in New Mexico, but in other countries across the globe, unfortunately, political violence is a reality. And I just really hope that this is a wake-up call and, and we find paths to reduce this and, and make this an issue that we don't have to talk about in the future because the reality is if we continue down this path, right, this will be something, unfortunately, that we start to take for granted that, you know, being an elected official sometimes comes with, with having yourself and your family in harm's way. And I know none of us want to see that happen. Well, thanks for this important discussion, Gabe. We appreciate your time. I appreciate y'all having me. Thanks again to KRQE investigator Ann Perrette and UNM political scientist Gabe Sanchez for joining us for this discussion. We can also link to our coverage on this story on krqe.com. We'll put links in the show notes. One more quick note I was just reminded of. New Bernalillo County District Attorney Sam Bregman said in his press release, he will personally prosecute Solomon Pena's case. So he did mention when he came into this office that he was excited to get into the courtroom. This may be a case where we do see him in the courtroom. And just yesterday, Sam Bregman did appear alongside a deputy district attorney from the Bernalillo County DA's office for a pretrial detention hearing. The request that was up for a judge to hear was whether or not Solomon Pena would be held in jail through his trial. That is something the judge approved. So based on the nature and circumstances of the charges, as well as defendant's own history as a convicted felon, and the allegations of possession and use of an assault rifle, as well as the allegation that he has provided firearms to his conspirators, I do find the state has met its burden there. Thanks for listening this week. If you have an idea, send it over to us. I'm at Chris McKee TV on social media, and you can also reach me on email, chris.mckee at krqe.com. You can also reach me at gabrielle.burkhardt at krqe.com via email and gburknm on social media. Thank you all for listening.